thank you for joining us, Batul, on this episode where we're going to be breaking down uh, all of this crazy week that's been going on. I speak for so many of us where I feel like it's been very hard to watch a lot of the carnage and uh, the scenes that are coming out of, you know, the, the recent hospital bombing, the church bombing. Um, the children that are dying, the death toll increasing by day. Can you tell me, what do you make of all that's going on right now in occupied Palestine? I was surprised by what happened in October the 7th. Um, But it's not the events of October the 7th that surprised me as much as the fact that it's ultimately taken 7.5 decades for the Palestinians to basically rise up in a way that tectonically shifts the balance of powers and essentially weakens the Israeli occupying entity. Because that's exactly what we saw on October the 7th. Because ultimately the Palestinians have learnt, just like the rest of the oppressed nations that defeated uh, Western colonialism, that you ultimately cannot call upon the UN to invoke resolutions that are hidden on the shelves, like, you know, Gaza's besiegement is illegal, or the West Bank's occupation is, is illegal, or that Palestinians have the right to return, that the only way to bring about true changes to basically force and to shift the balance of powers on the ground. Um, Because remember, it was the UN that carved up Palestine like it was a piece of bread. It was the UN that was formed Mm. ultimately post-World War II by the victors of the war in order to consolidate their hegemony and control over the world. Um, So ultimately, every action has a reaction. So it's like, what do you expect from a besieged and then occupied uh, people for 75 years, you know, whose homes have been bordozed, who've been literally kicked out, making way for fresh Zionist uh, Jewish settlers to steal. Um, in terms of what we were you seen, Were you surprised by, by them outright bombing a hospital with over a thousand civilians? Not at all. Um, really? They've used chemical weapons, they've used white phosphorus, at least 160,000 Palestinians between uh, 2008 and 2023 were killed or severely injured. Um, what's what's surprising about that? You've had the onslaught of 2008 and 2012 to 2014 to 2021. Every single other year, a whole bombardment, a whole carpet bombing of of Gaza is launched, and and they claim the objective is to is to target the resistance. Well, they've ultimately failed. Um, so it's a failed case for them because if it didn't work in 2008. How is it going to work in, in, in 2023? But ultimately, this is the reality that Palestinians have been living since 1948. We always need to bring it back to the root. Olive trees being decimated, sewage being pumped into fields so Palestinians can't farm. When you talk about Gaza specifically, you're talking about a besiegement since 2007. It's been 16 years that Gaza has been an open air prison that's completely blocked from the world. So Gazans are completely trapped. You're talking about a land, sea and air blockade. So this colonial criminal siege did not begin 10 days ago. And furthermore, Gaza was actually Gaza was occupied since 1967. From 1967 until 2005, Gaza was actually illegally occupied. But actually what forced the Israeli occupation to withdraw was the Palestinian uprising. It was the Second Intifada that led to a unilateral withdrawal of the um, Zionist settlers. So imagine in Gaza, you literally had Zionist settlers in the same way that you have that in the West Bank, right? Um, But ultimately, the Palestinians knew and expressed that um, it was not appealing to their oppressors that would grant them that victory. In fact, it was under the Oslo Accords that the greatest amount of land 
theft and annexation actually happened. Um, so those who purport that peace comes about through negotiation and, and sitting on the table, the Zionist slogan is from the Nile to the Euphrates. It's an entity that is expansionist in its nature in order for it to survive because it was erected on the ruins of the ethnically cleansed Palestinian people. And they know that the only way to support that occupation is through brutal suppression. How was a besieged people able to carry out such an operation? What happened on October 7th? Uh, the resistance made it clear that this was an operation that was years in the making. So what's absolutely shocking and the first question mark that gets raised over here is the intelligence. You know, you have collaborator networks that are robust within the Gaza Strip. I mean, you're, you're talking about an entity that was occupied from 1967 until 2005. Every inch of the Gaza Strip is known to the T. You know, you literally have the CCTV footage of every single inch of that land. So the Al-Aqsa flood battle in many ways was that greatest turning point that has occurred since 1948, since when the occupying entity was established. Essentially, what it did was it turned the equations upside down, um, because for the first time, you've actually got the Hudson's basically pushing through those walls, that, those colonial walls that were created, and they were mm -hmm. sweeping right into the heart of the 1948 borders. So ultimately, the battle transformed from one that was defensive deterrence, aka the Zionist entity launches an onslaught, and then they have to then respond to that. It went from being defensive for the first time in 7.5 decades to an offensive transformation. When we talk about the entity's weakness, you know, the biggest aspect of this is, is dealing a blow to the intelligence and the military field at every level. Ultimately, mm -hmm. October the 7th, what it did was it shattered the notion that the occupying entity is this mighty force to be reckoned with. And it further allowed the Palestinians to establish this new deterrence equation that actually now they're seeking to, to stabilize, which is the notion that, you know, we can attack the heart of the 1948 borders as and when we see fit through every means, and it's a surprise. So ultimately, this transformation, it, it, it's important that we understand how the politics of it works. It's not something that happened and that's it, it's established. It takes time. It takes time for those effects to be digested. I'm not exaggerating when I say that, you know, the leaders of the occupying entity, they wake up still in shock that this happened. They get nightmares about what's happened. Ultimately, what the resistance are doing right now is they want to get to a stage where, where this deterrence equation becomes consolidated such that it cannot be disrupted. And new equations subject to this new reality are consolidated because the Israeli occupation and those who support it now are trying to reverse this new reality. When we see the blood, when we see the the killing of the innocents to the unprecedented scale that we're seeing in Gaza right now of over a thousand literal babies and children. What we see is happening in Gaza right now is an operation of just pure revenge. That's mm. that's the reality of the indiscriminate killings. That's the reality of white phosphorus. It's an operation that's seeking to bolster the morale of the settlers that has been completely shattered because they were under this illusion that they were protected by a militarized state. The resistance has made it very clear that when it um, fires rockets, that is in order to expose the geographic and the demographic vulnerability of the reality of the occupying entity is that these individuals, taxpayers' money is paid in order to send Jews from across the globe to live as settlers in a land, um, essentially where they are living on the ruins of the ethnically cleansed Palestinian people. You have to incentivize them to live in an environment where there's a potential lack of security. How do they get incentivized? Imagine they tell you that there's a safe haven, there's, there's beautiful weather, 
there's great kebabs on the streets, you know, um, there's protection, ultimately there's protection. And you will be surrounded by like, this idea of like the dream of the Jewish homeland, essentially, that's, that's mm -hmm. exactly how they sell it, to try and encourage as many people to go as possible, because of course you don't, no state can be erected without a people. And that's mm -hmm. the crucial thing. Yeah. The settlers ultimately are the enablers of the occupation. The moment the settlers themselves feel there is no protection, they're going to flee the moment they get that chance. But ultimately, those settlers have double passports because they're coming from their own land that they inhabit and have their own original passports. You would think this is such a, a, a common sense idea, right? That these, these settlers have dual citizenship, I guess even though that is yeah. the wrong thing. And, and the indigenous people, they can't leave. They're essentially trapped around air, land, and sea. So it just uh, comes down to common sense. Why is it that the masses still just don't care? It's the kind of environment that those at the top wish to create. So if you look at the reality of the West, um, it's, it's built upon fakeness, you know, entertainment, movies. Hollywood, celebrities, influencers, these, these are all very important tools to consolidate um, the kind of trajectory and the kind of society that the capitalists and those at the top wish to create. They have to essentially numb you and they numb you through these different establishments. And you actually see that, for example, the celebrity industry itself is a very political entity. You see many celebrities that go to bolster politicians and then those politicians get into power, for example, like Trump was very notorious for using Kanye West and Kim Kardashian in this pursuit, just to make that point that, that this is the kind of world that we live in on the one hand. And when it comes to those who, who might have an inkling to be affected, right? The mass media know how to turn the victims into perpetrators and the perpetrators into victims. And that's a very important strategy in order to justify wars, to justify invasions. For example, we see that Islamophobia was a very important tool in order to, to garner consent for occupying Muslim countries. That's why Islamophobia for the longest time was a priority on the agenda of the Western establishment, because A, it wanted to create a kind of inferiority complex within the Muslim communities domestically so that they don't stand up and challenge the unjust status quo and defend themselves. So that's why they introduce counter-terrorism laws and they introduce the likes of prevent in order to censor what those dissenting voices have to say. So it's almost like you have to pay a price for what you say. So it's the fear-mongering. What astounds me about this is how the IDF themselves went out and posted that they're going to be bombing the Gaza hospital, that they did bomb the hospital and then they deleted multiple tweets. And then somehow, I don't know if it was like a PR nightmare where they went back and they turned the whole whole thing on the resistance. They pointed the finger so easily when there's so much evidence disproving that. I think from from the mouth of those at the top themselves. So it's not, I mean, look, the Zionists gloat about killing Palestinians. They literally say they're human savages. Yeah, they're and MO. Exactly, yeah. they're animals. And, and the price that they have to pay is cutting of electricity, no food, no water, no electricity, nothing. Let them die a, a, a slow, painful death. They mm. openly talk, talk about these things and they're not shy yeah. of that reality. And the thing is, the reason that they gloated about the, the bombing of the hospital is because they genuinely thought that they could get away with it. They were under the pretext and the promise and the illusion that actually no one's going to react to this. And I don't think they, they knew the extent of the killing toll. I think the moment the numbers started to rise and this really started to gain traction, they were like, hold on, we're in a little bit of trouble here.
And so that's ultimately why they retracted. But we should not be surprised one bit that mass media is the way that it is. It's either owned by government entities or it's owned by billionaires. And the job of these establishments is as an echo chamber for uh, the establishment itself. Geostrategically and geopolitically, priorities are shifting because the global south are getting stronger and stronger and the balance of powers is tilting in their favour. And ultimately, we're seeing the demise and the sh- and, and the sinking of the uh, American empire. With time, this has been a gradual process. And alongside it, you're seeing the decaying of its tentacles and its powerhouses globally. And the Zionist entity was created as an extension of the West to serve as a strategic military outpost in this area of importance. But given the area is becoming less important, and given the nations are rising and you're having the strong coordinated uh, front that has mobilized essentially as a result of the machinations of the West Mm. to subdue the populations and to defeat them and to impose this new Middle East project, imagine it backfired. So they created Daesh to eradicate Mm. the remnants of the resistance, but you've got the Hashta Shabi, you've got the Houthis um, that formed, you know, as a result. And you have this United Coordinated Resistance Front. So ultimately, the West knows that it cannot rely on a fragile entity on the long run to secure its interests. The basic fundamental principle of security is mutual respect and mutual safety. Do you think America is going to realize that or that in order to move forward, it needs to respect so that we can at least benefit from something rather than getting kicked out altogether? Right, absolutely. The West knows it can't rely on a fragile entity to achieve its interests. And ultimately, abandoning that entity becomes an option that can be effective when an entity turns from serving your interests to becoming a liability and a burden. So we always have to remember that this the Zionist dream was facilitated not because the imperial masters believed in it, but there was a meeting point in the interests between the Zionists and the imperialists. It's like, if if Zionism wasn't a thing, we'd invent a movement as such. I think Joe Biden at one point said that. So the function of the establishment of the occupying entities to act as that disciplinary stick to protect Western interests in a region of strategic importance. But the reality is that the occupying entity has gone from protecting Western interests to now needing protection. And no longer is it that main tool through which the West consolidates its hegemony in the region. You can think of of the Zionist entity now as a reserve force that is available for the West as like this extra intelligence and military through which it can confront adversaries like Iran and Russia. But if America... If America decides that it wants to recognize the power balance on the ground and it wants to deal with the real and the effective forces, because let's be real, it's the effective forces on the ground that if you deal with them, at least partially your interests can be met. We're talking about the forces that have formed in the region that do not accept imposed hegemonic humiliation. That is their policy. We'll deal with you if you deal with us with mutual respect. And now these entities are the entities that have the upper hand in the region. It's a policy of hegemony and working to monopolize these forces that led to the cohesion of these forces in the first place. So I think if America wants to look at its interests, then it needs to realize actually that to keep fighting and to keep subduing and to keep undermining the people of the region through its hegemonic tentacles, that's not served you anything in these past two decades. That's only led to your weakening and to their strengthening. But the interesting question over here is that that's when the function of the Zionist entity becomes obsolete because the functional role of the Zionist entity was to confront. It's to put those regional powers back in their place in order to to serve Western interests. So if right now you're in a position where you're actually mending ties with those entities and you're going in the direction of compromise, and America is going in the direction of compromise with Iran eventually, 
maybe not now we're not seeing that now but it's going in that direction why because logically speaking there's nothing america could do to stop iran's development 40 years of brutal sanctions have overturned speaking but but speaking of the strength that you're you're talking about do you think that obviously we see the world turning up for palestine you see the more that they revenge kill and target babies and children and women the more the world is angered we see people marching in jordan and even in lebanon there's people on the streets taking over the embassies and storming do you think that the arab nations who have been mum about all this we see iran leading this uh, resistance front are they going to come together at some point are they going to unite are they going to put an embargo or a boycott to put pressure on the carnage ending i'll make an important point here um and you mentioned the Islamic republic of iran that iran is the only real serious uh, nation when it comes to actually placing principles over national interests and ultimately it's the reason that it's been besieged in sanctions for the past four decades it's because its principles are overshadow its national interests and any entity that decides to go in that direction where they really put human principles first there's ultimately a price that you'd have to pay but ultimately what the resistance is trying to do right now specifically iran is it's trying to prove to the arab nations especially those that normalized so from the gulf states and especially the likes of saudi arabia that were on the cusp of normalization it's trying to show them essentially that supporting the zionist entity is a losing game which is why amir hussein abdullahian you know he said that the resistance in the region is making independent decisions and no one can guarantee the conditions will remain the same and mm. that's a very kind of implicit statement to say that actually in the same way that no one anticipated october the 7th you don't know what extra additional surprises we have and you don't know how long the confrontation is going to take before actually the occupying entity ceases to exist and um, this was actually the remarks that he made uh, during a speech at an emergency meeting of the organization of islamic cooperation that occurred in saudi arabia like 2 3 days ago um but ultimately look we know that with the gulf states they're not independent the gulf states are hostage to america in return they get security in return they get their thrones and their seats they go where their interests take them when you look at realities like the uae joining brics or for example a normalization or the reestablishment of ties between saudi arabia and iran that has everything to do with the gulf states trying to find the new middle ground because even they acknowledge that america is a sinking ship so it's almost like if they america don't, don't want to be left uh, high and dry they don't want to but at the same time they are really stuck in the middle because at the same time they're not independent it's not like these decisions are in their hands so it's america that came forward and said to bahrain said to the uae said so even morocco and sudan you have to normalize ties you don't really have a choice in this matter the muslim world is clamoring for where are the arab leaders and right. what is the crown prince salman bin salman doing i mean he he was single-handedly leading the coalition against uh, the innocent yemenis not too long ago since okay. 2015 and that led to the starvation of millions put an entire country like in, into famine blockade the muslim world hasn't figured out that really there there is no hope in these arab leaders right it's important that we make a distinction between those in power and the people of these countries because it's exactly as you say the people of those countries are mobilizing are taking to the streets even with nations like egypt for example so egypt was actually the first i believe arab country to normalize this was in camp david 
um, with Anwar Sadat. You know, so it's been decades. We're talking about since the beginning of the 1980s, so over 40 years. But yet, look at the steadfastness of the Egyptian nation when it comes to the Palestinian cause, for example. I mean, just literally yesterday, you had Egyptians taking to the streets, begging the leader of the resistance in Lebanon to, to, to intervene, you know, mm-hmm. um, and, and to kind of cause a decisive blow. Um, despite all the efforts by America to sow discord and division, because that was ultimately its strategy for the past decade since since the so-called Arab Spring, was to ultimately cause sectarianism. It was to create this entity called Daesh. It was to bolster the Muslim Brotherhood. It was to put Erdogan in the face um, of the Brotherhood as this like Sunni pole to fight the so-called Shia crescent uh, led by the Islamic Republic of Iran. Of course, the superpowers couldn't care less if you're Sunni or Shia, but they know how to stoke the seeds of sedition within the... the I mean, uh, ISIS has just bombed um, a Shia mosque in Afghanistan. Right. And I couldn't help but think that, you know, is this like a big distraction at this right. time when, when everyone's coming together and all eyes right. are here? What's interesting is the resistance fought Daesh not under the sectarian line, not because Daesh uh, hates or fights because a Shia resistance per se. Mm-hmm. They fought Daesh under the title of like the American Conspiracy Project for the region. This is a very important point that we don't get dragged to the square that they want us to be to look at this issue as a sectarian issue because at the crux of it, Islamophobia is not anti-Islam. This Shia genocide that we're seeing is not anti-Shiaism. It's very, these realities are political. It's inherently mm. political because the line of resistance is being led by Iran that's that's a Shia nation. That is why they seek to mobilize an entity like Daesh, for example. They pump Daesh with these ideas that, you know, Shias are a what. Arawapad, for example, you'll go to heaven, you'll you'll feast with the prophet if you kill them, for example. It's for them to cut this line of resistance that that is representing the true Islam that is really fighting uh, imperialism and and is seeking independence and is seeking dignity and izzah and freedom. Is Netanyahu unhinged? Can he act independently from the United States of America? No. Uh, the reality is anyone who understands the power dynamics that govern um, the Zionist entity and the American establishment or the West more generally is that actually the Zionist entity was a creation of the West in order to fulfill their functional role. The Zionist entity receives complete security, military and economic protection from the West. And the truth is, even the West itself wasn't prepared for this war. So America sent its warships to the region because the Israeli occupation entity is very weak. And the Western leaders, they themselves went. So you had Macron, you had Angela Merkel, you had even Rishi Sunak. They went there just to calm them down, just to calm the occupation authorities down and to reassure them. Because the occupying entity is, we're seeing it shamelessly seek help from the West and express that these are its worst days. Um, But essentially what the West wants to do right now is it wants to manage the next steps, even if that means the defeat of the occupation, because that is a possibility, especially if the front was to expand, not necessarily in this confrontation, because I don't believe that this confrontation is the decisive one. These things really do take time. We're talking about the next few years. But ultimately what America wants to do is it wants to manage the balance to tilt under their authority and not the rising people of the of the region. They don't want to be outside of the picture. It goes back to the point that ultimately the West knows that it cannot rely on a fragile entity to achieve its interests. It's hard for me to hear that as an American, to know that my tax dollars, that the government, the place that I live in, is literally backing this carnage. Where do we go from here? A lot of people are asking in the U.S. Capitol and in a lot of places here in the United States to practice restraint, to have a ceasefire. 
Are these efforts falling on deaf ears? What are we going to see? We're currently witnessing a transitional phase. There's turmoil because the occupying entity, as we were saying, does not want to change the deterrence equation, uh, which they are seeking to reverse. They're seeking to, re to reverse this through the blood of women, through the blood of children in Gaza. But ultimately, it's important to understand that no entity is interested in expanding the front. But the resistance is ready. The resistance considers that it's already achieved the victory. It's demonstrated the fragility and the failure of the occupying entity more than they imagine and consider that a victory for them. Uh, so it's actually likely that this uh, settlement will end after a lot of in innocent blood. If the West doesn't review its positions, it will find itself after a while really outside uh, the sphere of influence. We know for sure that the occupying entity has suffered a major setback. The Axis won an important victory and we may see new surprises occurring from the resistance major operations deep within the entity because look, the entity was not reacting based on anything during October the 7th. It announced that every ounce of the 1948 borders belongs to Palestine and Palestine belongs to all the Palestinians across the diaspora who have the right to return. We are launching this operation in order to liberate the territories of Palestine since 1948. That's the demand of the people of Palestine that we want our land back and we refuse to live under the hegemony of occupation and colonialism that's gone on for too long. But ultimately interventions and scenarios of wars are decisions that are not made on emotional basis. This is very important from both sides. It's made on strategic, it's made on tactical grounds, even if the public's patience runs out, even if the people who are so sick and tired of the genocide and the onslaught and the bombing of the hospital say, when is the resistance going to, to intervene? Intervention doesn't just happen on a geographical, you know, certain area. Well, Until terrorists are recognised, yeah. the atmosphere will remain hot. And the arena in turmoil will exist in more than one front until they establish that deterrence on the ground. A lot of people would ask, though, was this operation worth it? given how many people have died due to revenge attacks. Absolutely. It goes back to that question of actually what shifts the balance of powers on the ground. You know, mm. it's that direct confrontation. If you are going to have to wait for the UN to invoke resolutions like Palestinians have to, the right to return or you have to return back to Western... It has I mean, yeah, these resolutions, they're on the shelf and they will be activated when the balance of powers on the ground shift, but you have to impose that shift. There's no way in which that shift can be imposed without tectonically shifting the balance of powers. You have to existentially weaken the occupying entity to get to that position. So just think about it, for example, it was in 1948 that the Zionists were able to capture 80% of Palestinian land. They established a certain equation. 1967, they went into all of historic Palestine they also captured the Golan. Yeah. They also captured Syria. So they marked their territory by that point that we're expansionists. Mm -hmm. That allowed them to, to, to then go into Lebanon in 1980. How else were the Zionists able to do that but through that confrontation, right? Mm -hmm. So essentially the maps of the world change after wars, right? It was right. after World War I that you had the Sykes-Picot Agreement that essentially carved up the whole of, of West Asia and actually gave Palestine, it handed Palestine over from the Ottomans to the Brits and it was the Brits in 1917 that made that promise to Balfour, the Balfour Declaration, that actually, if we win this war against the Ottomans, we will give the Jews this land. We will facilitate your dream, ultimately. And it was the imperialists who actually said to the Zionists, because ultimately the Zionists at first 
They wanted East Africa. They wanted British East Africa to be their colonial outpost, believe it or not. So Theodore Herzl, who was actually the founding father of Zionism, as they call him, he actually suggested Uganda at one point. But then the Brits came and said, hold on, this area, Palestine is of strategic importance to us due to the Suez Canal, due to the, I mean, we're talking about 30% of the world's economy passing through this strait. Uh, which is a lot cheaper than imagine having to go from Asia through Africa into Europe. You can just pass through through the strait directly. So it's a very, mm. it is a very strategic important point. Not just because of the natural resources, because those resources were discovered later on, but it's because if you ultimately control a pressure point, a pressure point such as a vessel through which the majority or a large substantial proportion of the world's economy passes through, then ultimately that enables you to pressure other nations to fit within the trajectory that you want them to be in. So that's why even America, as much as we say that the, the region is losing strategic importance for America because of the defeat that it, it has suffered at the hands of this united resistance that's emerged with time, mm. um, the region is still to some extent holds that strategic importance because of the nature of the economy of the scale of the matter. Thank you so much for joining me today, Batul. I hope we have many more conversations to come. For those who don't know, Batul is TMJ's exclusive Patreon writer, and she actually will be releasing a report on all this. So please be sure to check that out. If you enjoyed this interview, please give it a like, share, and subscribe to our YouTube channel for daily content. You can find us on all social media platforms at TMJ News Network, as well as join our Telegram channel for exclusive content. Every Friday, we release a newsletter called The Muslim Brew, which has all exclusive content for our readers and subscribers. And be sure to support our work by becoming a patron on our Patreon channel.